Welcome to Cryptozoology with Dr. Daisy. I'm Dr. Daisy Fiore, and I research, write, and read everything you hear on this podcast. I hold a PhD in anthrozoology, an MA in anthropology, and a long fascination with the world's lost and undiscovered creatures. So join me on a journey to explore what may be lurking in the corners of this fascinating place we call planet Earth. Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Yeti, the Abominable Snowman, the Skunk Ape, the Yaren, the Yowie. It seems like wherever you go, there's a legend of a big hairy hominid walking the forest. He might just be the best known cryptid out there. He's certainly the most searched for. From Finding Bigfoot to Expedition Bigfoot, he's got more TV shows than the Kardashians. Across the world, there are self-proclaimed researchers and organizations dedicated to finding him. Skeptics laugh at the always blurry pictures and believers tell stories, often quite frightening, of their encounters. So, who is Bigfoot? What is Bigfoot? Is he real? Is he even possible? Many people are first introduced to cryptozoology with tales and legends of Bigfoot, but in many ways, he is the most complex of cryptids, lying somewhere in the nexus of our collective unconscious, our fears, and reality. So let's dive in, because this one is going to be a doozy. First, let's set some boundaries, because Bigfoot isn't one cryptid, and he isn't found in just one place. Almost every culture and every place on Earth has a story, a legend, or a folktale about a hairy ape that's almost human, but not quite. Long ago, these were all thought to be mythological by Westerners, until we discovered gorillas and chimpanzees. So there are hairy apes with very human-like qualities out there. Bigfoot is different, though. He's something else. And he changes depending on the place. Today, I want to talk about the North American Bigfoot, mostly because the Himalayan Yeti has some very different qualities and is going to require a whole different conversation. You see, orangutans once lived all the way into the Himalayas. The fact that we have hard evidence of a real great ape living in the area a mere 12,000 years ago or so, changes the conversation of the Yeti drastically. It means there is still a chance of great apes in the area, or that the stories could be based in reality. Anyway, that's a topic for another episode. Today, we're staying in North America with Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, or the Skunk Ape, if you live with me down here in Florida. So who is the North American Bigfoot? Who are we looking for? The benchmark for what he looks like can really be found in a piece of footage from 1967 called the Patterson-Gimlin film. You've seen this video. It's a shaky camera, but it very clearly shows a large, upright, hairy creature walk through the screen from left to right behind a stream and look directly at the camera. If it's not ringing a bell, pause this podcast and go watch it. I'll wait. See? I told you you knew it. The footage was shot in Northern California in 1967 alongside Bluff Creek in Six Rivers National Forest. The film was shot by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, both of whom maintained the validity of the film. Patterson until his death and Gimlin until today. Patterson first became interested in Bigfoot in 1959. He published on the matter and went on several expeditions looking for Bigfoot. When the famous footage was captured, he and Gimlin were filming a mockumentary of sorts about Bigfoot. 
As the story goes, they were riding along Bluff Creek on horseback when they spotted the creature in the footage. Patterson ran after it with with the camera while Gimlin got his rifle out, and the result is the footage we have now, though it has been steadied. I'm not going to go over all of the controversy surrounding the film. There's simply been too much of it. Issues with when and how it got developed, by whom, who was there, inconsistencies in the accounts of Patterson and Gimlin of that day, and more abound. However, I will note a few notable things said about it. Bernard Hovelmans, who we discussed in episode one, did not believe in the footage. He believed it to be a human in a suit. John Napier, a primatologist and Bigfoot believer, also didn't believe in the footage. He pointed to the creature simply being incorrectly built for a primate. However, various special effects designers have stated that they could not make anything that looked that real or had the gait of Patty, as the Bigfoot in the film has been nicknamed. Though Patterson and Gimlin both denied a hoax, a man named Philip Morris claims he made the suit seen in the film and sold it to Patterson in 1967. What's more, a man named Bob Hieronymus claims to be the person in the suit, though there are some inconsistencies with his story. Whatever you believe of the footage, it has shaped Bigfoot research since it was filmed. In many ways, it's the image of Bigfoot we all hold in our minds and what we're looking for when we set off into the forests of North America to look for him. For my part, I do not believe the Patterson-Gimlin footage depicts a real creature. My reasoning is simple. The creature shown has a bipedal stance and gait. He walks on two legs, but he does not show the other necessary evolutionary accompaniments of a bipedal ape. Specifically, his arms are too long. This creature looks like a gorilla who decided to stand up one day and be fully upright, but that's not how evolution works. So let's discuss something that people always fail to discuss with Bigfoot. Is he possible? The defining feature of the North American Bigfoot is that he walks on two legs. All the accounts and stories and supposed pictures and footage claim it's Bigfoot and not a bear or a moose or a deer because he's upright like us. Bigfoot's bipedality is what makes him unique. He has our gait. But here's the thing. Being bipedal is unique. It's so unique. We're the only known ape that does it, and we've created a special evolutionary group called the hominins that is all the apes that have ever walked upright. Basically us and all of our ancestors. Just because it's so incredibly unique. You see... The other great apes may stand upright or walk a few feet, but they aren't considered bipeds. They have their own form of locomotion or movement called knuckle walking. It's also really special and works very well for them in their habitat. There are some animals that walk on two legs, kangaroos, birds, and even dinosaurs, but they still don't do what we do. Our form of locomotion is completely unique to us, and it might only have evolved once. And it had to have been really important for whatever we were doing. We know that because we sacrificed a lot to stand upright. If you've had a baby, you already know that. The modified pelvis that allows us to stand upright shrunk the birth canal. The baby has to spin twice in there, meaning it comes out backwards. So we can't assist in our own birth like other apes can. And the baby's head is bigger than the birth canal. 
hence all the pain and screaming. We give birth at an earlier stage of development so the baby can make it out, which is why other primate babies can cling and look around at birth and ours can't even hold their heads up. We also added a curve to our spines, resulting in all kinds of back problems. We put a blood vessel along the back of our knees so we can't lock them without fainting. We added arches in our feet and lost our grasping big toe, losing dexterity and adding foot problems. We shrunk our arms to balance our center of gravity. And we did it all so we could stand on two legs. What I'm getting at is that being bipedal is complex and requires sacrifices. A gorilla didn't just stand upright one day and go, this seems fun, let's do this. And yet, that's the image of what Bigfoot appears to be. Bipedalism also evolved in a very specific place. It did not evolve in the forest. Those apes stayed quadrupeds or became knuckle walkers because it's the best form of locomotion there. Anyone who has ever tried walking through dense jungle knows we aren't really built for it. No, bipedalism evolved on the open savannas of East Africa. It was there that we became the specialized upright ape. Why? What was it about life on the savannas of East Africa that made it so critical for our ancestors to stand upright? It must have been pretty important to sacrifice being able to give birth effectively. The question of why we are bipedal, what was the selective pressure that made us like this, is a huge question in evolutionary anthropology. Maybe the question in evolutionary anthropology. And theories range from we needed to see over tall grass to we needed to carry things to it helped us stay cool. Honestly, no one really knows. Whatever it was, it was important. It only happened once, and it happened in the very specific environment of the East African savannas. That brings us back to Bigfoot. The most important thing I ask myself when analyzing cryptids is, can this animal exist? Is it evolutionary, evolutionarily possible? For many cryptids like the Lusca, a giant octopus, the answer is absolutely. Cephalopods can get huge, no reason it can't exist. For the Popabawa, a giant bat, I say, they already do exist. But with Bigfoot, I get stuck here. The creature we're searching for is a biped, a hairy biped. A hairy, six-foot-tall biped who lives in the forests in North America. Problem is, bipedalism evolved in East Africa. The earliest bipeds were tiny, three or four feet tall. By the time they reached our height, they were naked. By the time they left Africa, they were pretty much modern humans. So how did a tall, hairy, forest-dwelling biped come to be in North America? Is he descended from those first bipeds, the tiny hairy ones, and he just got big? It's kind of impossible. They never left Africa. Is he descended from the forest-dwelling apes? They didn't leave Africa either. You see, the only native primates to North America are humans, which didn't make it here until we were fully modern humans about 13 or 14,000 years ago. In Central and South America, we have some primates, but they're all small tree-dwelling monkeys, no apes. Did Bigfoot evolve from them? No, there's no pressure to be bipedal or large. So there are kind of two options. Either another ape evolved bipedalism, or he's closely related to us. Neither answer really makes sense. Bigfoot's generally considered to be a forest dweller, especially in North America. That's not where bipedality evolved. 
The forest dwellers do quite well as knuckle walkers. The hairy creature we see in the Patterson-Gimlin film is very gorilla-like. It even has a sagittal crest. That's the protrusion on the top of the head for extra muscle attachments on the jaw. So why would this creature live in a forest habitat, have all the other adaptations of a gorilla or chimp, and then be a biped? It makes no sense, especially with those long arms. They need to be shorter in a biped to ensure a good center of gravity for walking. So what if he's an ancestor or a cousin? People call Bigfoot the missing link. But the thing is, there is no missing link. The fossil record of humans is very complete. Each stage is represented and well-documented. There just isn't room to squeeze him in. He wouldn't fit anywhere, mostly because of his size. Bigfoot would require an offshoot of our family that grew to enormous size. Bigfoot encounters usually say he's much larger than a human without losing the hair. The sad fact is he just doesn't work. No matter what way you look at primate evolution, there is no large hairy biped living in the forests of North America. Well, I mean, there's some in Florida, but let's not bring Florida man into this. The last theory people cling to is that Bigfoot could be related to or a remnant of an Asian primate called Gigantopithecus. Gigantopithecus was a primate who lived in China, Thailand, Vietnam, and Indonesia until about 350,000 years ago. The only fossil evidence we actually have of this ape is its giant teeth and parts of the jaw. Now, I'll talk in another episode about its possible connections with the Yeti, but we're discussing North American Bigfoot. People want to connect Gigantopithecus to Bigfoot because it was likely massive, as the name suggests. As I said, we only have teeth, but based on the size of the teeth, it may have been 600 pounds and 12 feet tall. A huge ape for sure. However, it's likely it was related to the orangutan family. We can't know what kind of locomotion it had from just teeth, but being in the same environment as ancient orangutan ancestors, it probably wasn't bipedal. The evolutionary pressure just isn't there. Not to mention, he lived in Asia. The creature we call Bigfoot is, unfortunately, not at all likely when you look at it from an evolutionary perspective. So there we are. Bigfoot can't exist. That's it. And yet, as Mulder might say, all the evidence to the contrary is not entirely convincing. People still claim to see Bigfoot, and people still cling to the hope he might be out there. And I'm afraid, as a good anthropologist, as long as there are eyewitness accounts, I have to keep looking. Besides, let's face it, Bigfooting is fun. There are honestly few things more fun than finding a new trail in the Florida swamps and getting my sample jars together convincing myself he's just around the next corner. I've seen some pretty cool wildlife out there, so I can't call it a waste of time. And so I keep investigating. I watch the TV shows and I obsess over the YouTube videos. The problem is there's absolutely no reason the best of the YouTube videos can't be hoaxes and the worst can be bears, and the TV shows haven't found anything solid. If I sound like Scully, I apologize. When it comes to a creature that is evolutionarily nearly impossible, we're going to need strong evidence to say that it's real. So if we're going to look, let's do it right. Let's have an evidence-based approach to our search. So I'm going to tell you how to search for Bigfoot, and if he's out there, actually find him. Unlike the folks on TV, I have a master's in biological anthropology focusing on primates, so I think I know a few things about finding them I think could help. 
First off, let's stop ascribing an animal we've never actually seen, behaviors we can't possibly know it possesses. And let's definitely stop ascribing him near-human intelligence. If he could do half the things they claim on TV, he'd simply walk out of the forest and tell us to leave him alone. It's important when looking for an undocumented animal to make sure we're looking for evidence of the animal, not making evidence fit into our idea that the animal is there. I've seen the folks on TV find a shelter clearly built by kids, hikers, or unhoused people and claim Bigfoot did it. If he could build that, he needs to get a job and pay taxes. Wood knocks are a popular method for looking for Bigfoot. You knock two pieces of wood together and he responds by doing the same. I'm fairly certain this is just groups of Bigfooters knocking at each other. If this animal has the intelligence to use items external to himself, which constitutes tool use, to communicate with a distant individual he cannot see, again, the dude needs to pay some taxes. Sound is a good way to look for primates. However, none of the Bigfoot calls I hear are all that convincing. About 95% I've heard are probably coyotes. The other 5% are likely birds. Please open the Merlin Bird ID app if you go Bigfooting. It'll tell you whether those calls are birds and which birds. And don't forget, crows can mimic. A large ape will make the sounds of a large ape. Pant hoots and screams. But neither of these are likely unless it's directly threatened. Primates stay quiet unless they have a reason to be loud. Don't forget, they have predators too. That brings me to another Bigfoot oddity. Most higher primates are social. Bigfoot seems to be solitary. There are a few very sketchy accounts of family groups of Bigfoots, Bigfeet, but none of large social groups or troops. I think we have to assume he's solitary. If an animal that big lived in large troops, we would likely have found it by now. If he's solitary, he's likely going to be fairly quiet then, as most primate vocalization is made for communication within the troop. What does Bigfoot eat? So many shows claim he eats meat. They'll see a deer carcass and say, ah, Bigfoot has been here. No. A large forest-dwelling ape is going to be a folivore. Sketches and reports even claim he has that sagittal crest, a protrusion on his head that gorillas possess. It's to create space for muscle attachments for the large jaw and teeth. He'll be a folivore, as Gigantopithecus was. You might say, well, chimps eat meat. Yes, they do. But they're only able to do so with cooperative hunting. Bigfoot is solitary and couldn't catch meat on his own. Ever run down a deer on foot? That's not what bipeds do. And here we find another issue with the reports of Bigfoot and with the creature in the Patterson-Gimlin film. If Bigfoot is real, he's going to have a massive beer belly. If you've ever seen a gorilla in a zoo, you know the massive belly I'm talking about. It's not fat, it's intestines. Large plant eaters like gorillas and pandas need a huge digestive tract to extract all the nutrients from their low-quality food. The creature in the film, and in most reports, is nice and trim. Nice and trim, but with a big jaw and sagittal crest designed for eating low-quality foods. Again, that just doesn't make any sense. So if Bigfoot eats plants, and he almost certainly does, even if he scavenges some meats, he's going to be primarily a plant eater, then we need to stop looking for him at night. Every show has the people out there at night. 
and I know it makes for better TV, but Bigfoot has no business being out at night. There could be a thousand of them, and we're never going to find them. They'll be asleep. Apes split from nocturnal primates 70 million years ago, and only two have re-evolved nocturnality since then, the owl monkey and the tarsier. We'd know if Bigfoot was nocturnal because he'd have the trait that both the owl monkey and the tarsier share, comically large eyes. You see, most mammals have a layer of tissue in their eye called a tapetum lucidum. It's what gives dogs, cats, raccoons, and lots of other animals eye shine. When you see them at night and their eyes are sort of glowing, it's that tapetum lucidum. It helps with night vision. And the only primates who have it are the ones we split with 70 million years ago. Lorises and potos and those little tiny ones like bush babies. Then we lost it. The monkeys who went back to being nocturnal, like the owl monkey, did not re-evolve it. It's too complex of a structure. Instead, they just got these giant eyeballs. So if Bigfoot, if Bigfoot were nocturnal, he'd also have giant eyeballs and they would take up most of his face. It would look really weird. No account reports that, so he's not nocturnal. He'll be a day active ape, just like the rest of the apes. When looking for elusive animals, we usually start by looking for evidence of them, not the animals themselves. One of the best ways to look for large apes like gorillas or maybe Bigfoot is by looking for something we call night nests. This is a common way of counting gorilla troops. When primates bed down at night, they'll often make their sleeping spot a little comfier by gathering up some leaves or something soft or bending some branches. These aren't sophisticated structures, but they're noticeable to the trained eye in the forest. The urge to make a night nest is so strong in apes that little babies will start attempting it when they're just a few months old. I've seen baby gorillas in zoos tossing handfuls of hay into little piles in their first nesting attempt. It's really cute. Uh, so Bigfoot, as a large ape, will probably have the same urge to build night nests as other apes. So looking for evidence of a large night nest will be a great way to look for him. Another way is feces, which some searchers have done. And I'm going to get gross here for a minute, so I apologize. Monkeys and apes have a specific, I'm not sure I want to call it an adaptation, but it's a thing they do. In the wild, we call it fear dung. In zoos, we call it stress feces. When they get scared or upset, they poop. Not just any poop, though. Uncontrollable, very loose poop with a really particular smell. All primates do it. And if you think humans don't, next time you have a big presentation or a first date and you suddenly kind of need to go to the bathroom, well, stress feces. Anyway... I've read accounts of people saying Bigfoot was chasing them or running from them. That's a stressful situation, and it's reminiscent of gorillas chasing people down to protect their troops. If they're doing that, they should really just have stress feces uncontrollably flinging out the back the whole time. I've seen it, and trust me, it's a smell you do not soon forget. Now, I'm not saying go into the forest and scare the crackers out of Bigfoot, see if you can track the stress feces. I'm just saying it'd be one way to determine if there's a large primate out there. Bigfoot is heavily associated with footprints. Some convincing, some not. His very name is due to the big footprints he supposedly leaves behind. 
Looking for footprints can be a good way to search for animals, but we should use caution. There's this thing called pareidolia, which is the tendency to see patterns in meaningless images. Our desire to see footprints in random depressions of mud and sand is pretty high. However, if footprints are the way you're going, keep in mind what the footprint of a biped should look like. There should be five toes, and they should be in alignment like ours. A divergent digit would get in the way of effective bipedalism. An arch should also be present, and there should be no claw impression. All primates have nails instead of claws. Footprints should be carefully inspected for claw prints, because that will indicate a bipedally walking bear, not a primate. A single footprint on its own will be hard to establish as a large primate and not a bear, but a trail of footprints would be a major find and could help establish the gait of the animal that left them, and therefore whether it was a biped or not. So with these tips from me, and I'm sure others will have many more, I challenge you to better Bigfooting. If we are to continue searching for this evolutionarily unlikely creature, Let's do it with purpose and an evidence-based approach. These are the techniques I use when I head out to search for the swamp ape. I've so far been unsuccessful, but I have to admit, I've heard some eyewitness accounts that give me pause. If you have a story, email me at cryptozoologywithdrdaisy at gmail.com. I'd love to hear it. And if you're in Florida and know where I can find the swamp ape, let me know and I'll head out to investigate. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Cryptozoology with Dr. Daisy. For more content, follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also follow me on Facebook and YouTube or subscribe to the blog at CryptozoologyWithDrDaisy.com. I'll see you next time and don't forget to keep exploring. After all, you never know what you might find out there.